If you have a Bible with you, then please open it and follow with me as we reflect this morning on these very familiar words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever read the Bible and think to yourself, oh, if only were that possible? What I mean is sometimes when I read the Bible, and I read it every day of my life, there are times I think, Lord, are you expecting too much? Are you asking too much? Is this really possible? Think, for example, of Paul's almost closing words to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 4. He writes, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the God of peace will bless you. Be anxious about nothing. Is that remotely realistic? Or think of the passage before us. Three times did you notice in the passage, verse 25, verse 31, and verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, do not be anxious. Now, these men had left family, friends, occupations to embark on this adventure of following Jesus. They were leaving the familiar, the comfortable, the secure behind them, and yet here is Jesus saying to them, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And in case you've missed it, do not be anxious. Now, why is he saying this? Well, for the obvious reason, Jesus knew the human heart. He, he knew our propensity to anxiety, to worry So I want to look at these verses and to help us see, I hope, that Jesus is not asking the impossible. He's saying to us realistically, as those who have put their trust in him, and we'll see that that's the sine qua non, that's the the, the base point from which he embarks. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to men who had come to put their trust and hope in him alone. And he says to them, do not be anxious. Let me first of all say what Jesus is not saying in these verses. He is not saying, be cavalier about life. He's actually not saying, don't be anxious. You say, well, actually, he is saying that, Ian. Well, of course he's saying that. Do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. But you need to understand what he's saying. He's saying to them, do not be corrosively anxious. Do not be so anxious that you forget God. Life is full of uncertainty. And it's right that we should be concerned 
about ourselves, our families, our job, our church, the world we live in. There is a, just as there is a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger, so there is a righteous anxiety and an unrighteous anxiety. And Jesus is saying here to these disciples, if we had time, we could look at the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying to them, don't be so anxious as to forget who God is. Who God is. Whether it's the older I get, though I hope it's not simply that, more and more I've come to realize that the foundational truth that must shape and style everything I am as a Christian and everything every other Christian should be is our doctrine of God. When people ask me questions, they they, they can be varied. Someone asked me a, a little while ago, give me your best reason for baptizing babies. This was a very fine, godly, reformed pastor, probably the best-known reformed Baptist pastor in the world. I know him well. And I smiled and I said, the immutability of God. Oh, he said. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. The immutability of God. God doesn't change. And I've reflected on that ever since. And it seems to me that Behind all that our Lord Jesus Christ is teaching here and everywhere else is this foundational presupposition. Behold your God. So the Lord is not saying, don't be anxious, don't be unconcerned about life, don't live life as if you were blasé about all that's going on and you kind of just wandered through life with a stoical grin in your face. There's much that should perturb us that should cause us to be anxious, but not with an unbelieving anxiety. The second thing I want to ask is this. Why do Christians worry corrosively? Why do Christians worry, and this is the context here, becoming anxious about food and drink and clothing and job and family? So that they forget God. Well, Jesus puts his finger precisely on it at the the last phrase of verse 30. O you of little faith. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying to them, your faith is very small? Well, obviously, in a sense, he is saying that. But he's saying something more profound. What's the significant thing about faith? It's not faith. Faith won't take you anywhere. It will not take you to heaven. Faith will take you nowhere, but faith in God will. The glory of faith is its object. The glory of faith is not its quality, but its object. So later Jesus will say to his disciples, have faith in God. Are you forgetting who God is? The great, the almighty, the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth who spoke the cosmos into being, the multitude, the infinite, near-infinite multitudinousness of the stars, God said, let there be and there was. 
have faith in God, we, we become corrosively anxious when we become dislocated from the doctrine of God. And by the doctrine of God, I don't simply mean propositions about God. The doctrine of God is sweet. It's beautiful. It's moving. It's compelling. God is not a series of theological statements. These statements help us to begin, to begin, to begin to have some sense of the grandeur and the greatness of God. The reason we worry and become corrosively anxious and become turned in upon ourselves is that we forget who God is. It's like a little child who's out walking and perhaps they see something that really grips them with fear and then their father takes their hand and the child is reminded that they're with someone who will help them and who will be with them whatever the trial may be. John Owen, the great English Puritan, someone said to me, can you ever preach a sermon without quoting John Owen? Well, maybe, but maybe not. He said something in one of his works. Unacquaintedness with our privileges is our trouble as well as our sin. Unacquaintedness with our privileges is our trouble as well as our sin. Now, what is Owen saying? He's saying, the reason why we're so discomfited in life, the reason why we so often become distressed, knocked out of kilter, is because we are unacquainted with our privileges. That's why, when you read the Scriptures carefully, the great burden of the Holy Scriptures is to say to us, behold your God. Think of the letter to the Ephesians. How many chapters in Ephesians? Well, there are six, aren't there? Six. You know that. In the first three chapters, there's one command, one imperative verb, chapter 2, verse 11. In the next three chapters, there are 40 Commands. One command in the first three chapters, 40 in the next three. Now, what's going on here? Is that an imbalance? No. What Paul is doing is he's preparing the ground for the commands. He's saying to them in chapters 1 through 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing even as he chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestinated us unto the adoption of children and so he goes on. He's saying to them, do you see how greatly God has blessed you? How richly, how extravagantly he has lavished upon you. That's the language, isn't it? He has lavished his grace upon you. And it's only then that he begins in chapter 4 to say, Therefore, 
what worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And that's what Owen is saying. He's saying, if we were better acquainted with our privileges, if we pondered more, you know, someone asked me, and I was being interviewed in the States recently, and the interviewer said, if you could go back, you know, 40 years to a younger Ian Hamilton, what would you tell yourself? I thought, oh, goodness. Well, I would tell myself to read less and to ponder more. Now, that's relative. I probably read quite a bit. But I didn't ponder as much as I should have. I loved reading, always have loved reading. Books, going to college, going to university, that wasn't a trial for me. Reading was just, some people find it difficult to read. I never had that problem. But I didn't spend enough time pondering, reflecting. Someone asked me recently, do you read through the Bible in a year? I said, oh, I've never done that. Oh, do you not do it? I said, no, we're all wired differently. We said, well, what do you do? Oh, I alternate Old and New Testament, and I, I read. Well, how much do you read? I said, well, it depends. What do you mean it depends? I said, well, some days I just read a verse. You read one verse? I said, yeah. Then I spend the next hour thinking about it. Oh, or I might read three chapters, four chapters, whatever it may be. We need to ponder our privileges. But now to the text itself. That's the introduction. I want to notice with you the Lord Jesus' three antidotes to corrosive worry, to unbelieving worry to unbelieving anxiety, to anxiety and worry that has become disconnected from our doctrine of God. Three antidotes. Number one, verse 32. He tells them, your heavenly Father knows you need them all. The things you worry about, your heavenly Father knows. God is not unacquainted with your circumstances. He's not blind or deaf or dumb to your needs. He knows. He knows. Your heavenly Father knows. Now, it's quite a remarkable feature of chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount that on ten occasions, if I remember rightly, ten occasions, Jesus tells his disciples that God is their Father. That's more than the whole Old Testament put together. Now, God didn't start being the father of his people in the New Covenant. He was always the father. Remember, even Adam in Luke's genealogy is called the son of God. God has always been the father of his people. But with the coming of the Savior, the son of the Most High, the fatherhood of God comes into the sunshine, if you like comes out of the shadows. And ten times in chapter 6, Jesus keeps repeating himself. Now, some of you have been teachers, and you know that the essence of good teaching is repetition, 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 because most students are dumb. You've really got to drill it in. And Jesus is saying to them, now, have, have you got this? When you pray, this would have been astonishing. When you pray, 
What have you to pray? Great, majestic, sovereign, that's what God is. Glorious, ineffable, holy one, that's what God is. Everlasting one, that's what God is. Infinite and eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, justice, power, goodness and truth, that's what God is. No. Our Father. Our Father. Who is infinite and eternal. Etc. If you know your shorter catechism. He's saying your father knows. This transcendent God. Is your father. Now how does he know? Well he, for two reasons. He knows first of all because. He is the infinite, the eternal, the omniscient God. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, but he knows. He sees all things, he knows all things. But there's a second reason, isn't there? He knows because he himself has become acquainted with the frailty of our humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ knows because he has stood where we stand. He knows the struggles of life. He knows what it is to be disappointed, to be let down by people near and dear to you. He knows what it is to have the world pressing hard against him. He knows what it is to be utterly, utterly at the end of his tether that he says, my life has been a waste of time. And maybe you're thinking, did you make that up? No, I didn't. I don't make things up from the Bible. Where does the Lord Jesus Christ say, my life has amounted to nothing? It's been a waste of time. Anyone willing to? Probably not. You're thinking, I might know, but they might say... That's not the right answer. I've never had a student in all the years I've taught in seminaries know the answer to that, which astonishes me. It's the third servant song in Isaiah, the second servant song in Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 4. You know the servant songs where the Lord is drawing us a picture of the coming Messiah, Saviour, And the Messiah Saviour says, my life has amounted to nothing. You see, his humanity was real. It wasn't a superman humanity. We didn't need a superman. That would have disqualified him from being our saviour. We needed someone who was like us in the fragility of our humanity, sin apart. He knows because he has stood where we stand. He knows what it's like to have his own family not believe him, to think he was mad. And so Jesus says here, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Do you think he's blind to your circumstances? That he doesn't know the frailty of your humanity? That he doesn't understand your, your strange psychology? He knows. But then secondly, and 
More importantly, not only does your father know, your father cares. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He's saying to his disciples, stop and think. Do you know how valuable to God you are? Do you ever think about that? Do you know that at this very moment, almighty, ever-blessed, eternal God is rejoicing over all his people with loud singing? Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. You might be thinking here this morning, I doubt there's a poorer Christian in the whole of Inverness. I often think that about myself. I don't see that for effect. You might think, if people really only knew what I was like, they wouldn't ask me to do anything in this church. Isn't it glorious to know that our Heavenly Father, who knows us better than anyone, rejoices over us with singing, with loud singing. That here he calls us precious in his sight. Read the Song of Songs. And of course, where we see how precious we are to the Lord is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Why, why would God the Father deliver up to the cross of Calvary his own beloved son? Why would God make him who had no sin to be sin for us? Why would he do that? Because he loved us. Not because of any merit in us, not because of any desiring or deserving, but because it pleased him so to do. They are mine. I've chosen them from times eternal, but I need you to go, son, and save them. If you don't save them, they can't be mine. But I've chosen them to be mine. Will you go? Bear their sin, die their death, rise for their justification. And the son says, hear my send me. Jesus is saying <clears throat> to his disciples, your father not only knows, your, your father cares. Now there are times in life it doesn't seem like that. And the Bible is very upfront and honest, isn't it? I often think of... Um, Isaiah 45, verse 15. Truly you are a God who hides himself. You look around at times and say, Lord, where are you? That's why if we lose the Psalter, I think we lose vital Christianity. I don't mean, well, you know my views about that. I won't go into that. The Psalter is there, not first for us to sing, it's there to show us the nature of the life of faith. And the life of faith at times goes through dark valleys. 
Jonah and I were reading a couple of nights ago in Psalm 44. Lord, where are you? Awake. Imagine saying to God, wake. <laughs> you know, if, if it wasn't in the Bible, you wouldn't believe it. Who would have the effrontery to say to Almighty God, get up. You're sleeping. Awake. In the Hebrew, it's, a, it's an intensive verb. Get up! Oh, what's going on? Have you ever said that to God? Well, the psalmist did. Psalm 44, Psalm 88, you could go on, couldn't you? 40% of the Psalter are laments. Because the life of faith can be often dark. And there are times when God seems far off. That's why we need to remember, for example, in the 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I need fear no evil because you are with me. There are times when it doesn't feel as though God cares. That's why we go back to the cross all the time, every day in life. The cross recalibrates our minds and hearts. The cross reminds us how greatly God has loved us. But then there's a third antidote, and it's in verse 33. But, it's a strong adversative in, in Greek, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Your father knows your father cares, but now he says your father commands. And what the Lord is saying here is, stop thinking about yourself. Your needs, your concerns, your burdens. Your father knows, your father cares. Make his kingdom and his righteousness the great pursuit of your life. But seek first. It's a command. It's a command. It's the same kind of command as you shall have no other gods before you. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Seek first. It's in the imperative mood. You see, life with all its trials and troubles and exigencies, life has this tendency to turn us in upon ourselves. And Jesus is saying, commanding, stop thinking about yourself. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And he says, all these things that you're concerned about will be added unto you. Martin Luther had a wonderful phrase that so beautifully describes the, the nature of sin. He, he wrote, sin is incurvatus in se. But Latin. Sin turns you in upon yourself. That's what Satan is always seeking to do, to absorb us with ourselves. 
And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the extension of God's kingdom, the reign and rule of God's kingdom. Give yourself to making known to little ones and big ones the king who has come. Use every opportunity to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And that simply means live your life shaped and styled by what's pleasing to God. That's righteousness. God-pleasing living. And if you're thinking, well, how do I know what God-pleasing living is? Read the Bible. God-pleasing living is men and women, boys and girls, loving Christ, loving one another, husbands loving their wives, wives loving their husbands, children obeying their parents, parents cherishing their children, being honest and upright and good and true. Therefore, said Jesus, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And he could simply then be saying, and in case you're thinking about, oh dear, what about tomorrow? That's also in God's hands. You don't know what a new day will bring. You don't even know if there'll be a new day. For you, for me, or for the cosmos, the Lord may descend from the heavens with a shout. So, don't be anxious. Don't be unconcerned. Don't live life with a blasé attitude, but don't be corrosively, unbelievingly anxious. Remember who God is. Become better acquainted with your privileges. And seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Amen. Well, as we...